3: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This is the first time you join the show. Hey, welcome aboard. If you've heard the show before, you pretty well know our format. We do change it up a little bit. But the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, that's avoiding probate. And it's very important in today's world to avoid probate because the court system in some counties is, to put it mildly, bad. And you could have, have, let's say you own a house, and the deed to the house is in your name alone when you pass away you live in a certain part of Brooklyn or you live in Brooklyn and you get the wrong judge appointed to your case, it's possible you won't be able to sell that house or the, the heirs won't be able to sell the house for two-plus years. So things are not working smoothly right now in the court system in New York City. Also, as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, most of the time when we're talking about trust, the main asset we're thinking about putting in the trust is the home, and so today we happen to have our chief real estate lawyer at the office, Justin Daly. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so let me ask you, what was it that uh, when, when I first interviewed, what uh,
4: what interested me in your resume that you got hired? I was an Eagle Scout. I am an eagle scout is the uh, proper way to phrase it. Okay, an I, eagle scout always an eagle scout.
3: Yeah, I saw eagle scout and I say, hey, we got to take a look at this guy. So, those of you who are interested in scouting out there, it does sometimes work to your advantage. Um, but anyway, Justin, we're talking. What, what, what are some of the questions you get when somebody's trying to sell their house or?
4: Well, I mean, one of the things that comes up and unfortunately, a lot of people sometimes they just think we're a trust in the firm, and estates firm. we don't do real estate closings um and we do we do a lot of them actually um, and we do a lot of different transfers just for you know taking somebody's name off of a deed, putting it into trust. We also do that with co ops uh these those no consideration transfers are not what we're talking about though today. I'm talking about the actual purchases and sales. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people, when they don't come back to us, they may get incorrect guidance. Uh, And we'll get calls the day before our closing. Hey, my attorney doesn't know what I'm supposed to do with the money. Um, Where do I write the checks? And, you know, that can be pretty shocking that an attorney can't give that advice. But a lot of guys out there, or girls, I should say, as well, don't know how to deal with these trusts. Um, And what happens is they give incorrect instruction. If you have a family member who's on Medicaid or let's just say that you have uh, some other issue involved here and you don't have those checks properly written to the trust, you can really run into some problems.
3: I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody puts their house in a trust five years ago. Well, I think most of you know out there in New York right now, in most parts of the country, we have a five-year look-back period. So if you apply for medical assistance Medicaid to pay for your nursing home bill, You have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. What some people do, we put their house in the trust, and let's say we've got five years gone, or even four years or three years. They sell their house. The real estate attorney puts the checks in the seller's name alone, not in the trust, and you've all of a sudden started a new five-year look-back period, which could be disastrous if the person goes to the nursing home in
4: the next few years. Without question, and I mean the the thing that always kind of baffles me is on that contract is the name of the trust. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden they're writing a check to that person, and you know for whatever reason I, I think some people think when the house is sold all of a sudden it dissolves the trust. It does not dissolve the trust. What dissolves the trust is when, according to the terms of the trust, if you simply read the document, after the the you know the parents are gone and distributions are made to all the beneficiaries, then at that point is we're dissolving it. But it's not just selling an asset in the trust. It's actually that distribution of assets to the beneficiaries after that vesting has occurred. Um, you know, It's very important. Uh, these trusts, they're their own entity. They can buy and sell property. They can do all sorts of things. They're a very dynamic uh, estate planning tool for us. Um, you know, and a lot of people, the, the, the trouble that they have, they don't conceptualize it properly. I often like to like, uh, give the analogy of, look at it like you have a new family business. That's a good way to, to kind of conceptualize a trust. It's its own entity. A lot of times on the irrevocable, it has its own tax ID number. Um, and your kids are like the employees. They're helping mom and dad out, protecting mom and dad's assets. And, you know, there's self-interest there too because after mom and dad are gone, the assets have been protected, you're going to end up with more.
3: Yeah. And, 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 I mean, again, usually 90% of the time you're doing a trust, you're doing the trust for your children um yeah you may be doing it for your own peace of mind and know that your house is protected from medical bills and won't go through probate but really you're doing it for your children now some people you know say well i don't have any children why should I trust well the question is do you want to do it for your nephew or niece your significant other domestic partner or whatever and and, and you know 90 percent of the time when i talk about a trust i'm talking about parents and children because 90 percent of the times our trust is between parents and children, but again, it could be between uncle and aunt, nephew and niece, significant other, domestic partner, younger brother or sister. You know, if, if, We're going to talk more about the trust later in the show, but if you ask us, I, can I do this in a trust, can I do that in a trust, the answer is almost always yes. A trust is a very flexible document. and I know, Justin, sometimes people ask you questions about the trust in real estate and can we give money away after the closing and so forth.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, if 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 you want to do it, we can we can figure out a way to make it work. Um there's different there's different planning ideas, different planning tools that we can do to make sure that, you know, a parent's wishes are carried out. You know, but with, you know, with sometimes we have to put some uh training wheels on it though to to make sure that we're not doing things that are going to cause greater exposure to the family or or other issues. Um we we don't want to leave parents insolvent. Um, so, and a lot of times parents will say, well, I just want to give the kids everything. Well, sometimes you need that money, even if the money's protected. Um, so, but again, if you can think it, we can usually put it to, we can usually put it in motion for you.
3: And here's one of the things, even you got great kids, if you give it to the kids, something could happen to them. And let's say you have a son and you give it to your son and he passes away shortly after you may be making a gift to your daughter-in-law. And uh, of course, a lot of people don't feel that generous toward their
4: in-laws. I think a lot of our planning is based off of those in-laws. Right. I would dare say. That. Well, no, and even, no, but, you know, we've both seen it, unfortunately, happen where, you know, you leave it to the kid, the kid passes away shortly thereafter, then it ends up with the spouse, and then the spouse then remarries themselves, and you're... You're paying for, or your money's going to benefit a family that you've never even known. I mean, it does happen, unfortunately.
3: Well, like Joe Piscopo says, there are a lot of Mama Lukes out there. (laughs) It's a new term that people start to use when they come in the office as they're listening to Joe. And, you know, he's talking about his Mama Lukes, which he's got more than than most people, I have to admit. He's building his own cottage industry there. (laughs) Um But there are people who hang out and try to take advantage of your ass for money. And, I mean, you see that all the time. Yeah, it's very sad. Even sometimes children, you know, I mean, how many times you see this, you know, parents save up a lifetime, give the ass as children, and children don't plan at all. And next thing you got some,
4: quote, Mama Luke gloaming onto that money. It's really sad. It really is sad how people are taking advantage. And I mean, that's another thing that, you know, again, a lot of this is about protecting your beneficiaries. You know, yes, you know, up front, you might come in there to protect your own acids from your own possible medical bills. But uh, there's an unintended benefit here that that ends up getting realized when we start protecting your kids. Like, you know, you have a kid who has spending issues, kids with drug issues. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, these are realities of the world. And We can protect them. We can make sure that other people are in place for when you're gone, that they can help out and and get these kids on the right track. And it does happen. It does happen where we've set up trusts, uh, You know, kids are finally ready to become sober. The money's just sitting there waiting for it. It pays for their rehab. They go on to have clean lives. And, you know, and the whole time their siblings are probably acting as the trustee and they're helping their siblings move forward. And, you know, so it's important to to do this planning, not only for yourself, but also for your beneficiaries. And again, you tell us what your wishes are. We will put it it in motion. Now, what's the difference if somebody
3: owns a deed to the house or a condo or they own a co-op?
4: Oh, there's a big difference. We need the, we need to uh, kiss the ring, as they say. We have to <laughs> we have to ask the co-op's permission. Some co-ops don't allow trusts for whatever reason. Um, never a good reason, but a lot of times it's based off of ignorance. I mean, to be put it bluntly, they don't understand what trusts are. They don't understand the benefits, um, and so they don't allow us to do them. Um, whereas condos, houses, we have no issue. I mean, it's your property. You don't need the permission of the corporation who, who holds your shares. Uh, But, uh, you know, going on about, you know, difference between having a trust, not having a trust. I have one right now where the person left uh, their apartment to charity. Um, Unfortunately, we have a goodwill, but the management company won't let us do anything until we get uh, uh, letters issued from the court. Um, they won't work with us whatsoever, and um, right now the executor's frustrated. The The school who's getting the, ben- uh, the is going to be getting the contents of the home is frustrated because we're completely locked out, and unfortunately, we're in an environment right now where some of the surrogates in the five boroughs just don't want to work, and so several months this apartment is just languishing. Um, the, if this had been in a trust, we probably could have sold it or, or put it on the market a few days later. Yeah. You know, but even then, we might have had problems
3: with the same co-op trying to get it into a trust. Exactly. Yes. Of course. Yeah. And listen, you know, if, if co-op is the right thing for you, fine. You know, but you got to be very careful when you buy into a co-op. You're buying into a partnership with, depending on the size of your units, possibly a hundred other units, and the people who are in charge of your co-op may be control freaks. It seems to happen every once in a while, and you can't do with your own property what you would like to do. But in any event, if you want to talk about a trust, if you want to have a real estate transaction, you can give Justin a call. He's usually in our Brooklyn office, occasionally in Staten Island. Give him a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break. Thank you for listening to Ask the
5: Lawyer. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888 943 2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com/Fmelia. Once again, call 888 943 2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
1: Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now, you know, a lot of times people hear me say, well, you know, the best way to avoid probate if you own real estate is through a trust agreement. And maybe I should elaborate that on a little bit. So we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about real estate and, and trust. And remember, we always talk about you want to avoid probate. And especially in today's world, you want to avoid probate because in, in some places the court system is practically closed. Um, so if somebody passed away... In Brooklyn, let's say, two years ago, and they had a will leaving the house to their son or daughter, there's a good shot that will did not get through the court system right now, and that family is waiting two years to sell the house. We don't want to go through court. We especially don't want to go through court if somebody's going to contest our will, if we have missing relatives, if we have a person in our plan who's not mentally competent, and if we may have medical bills as a result of our last illness, which, you know, really covers any of us, no matter how good your insurance might be. Um, it may not cover all your expenses of your last illness. And, of course, especially if you go to a nursing home, the average cost of a nursing home right now is, is about $16,000, $17,000 a month in the city. So if you want to protect your assets from a nursing home, that's where we think about a trust for your home. But some people still have some resistance on that. And And let's go through some examples. L- let's say we have a deed to the house, John Smith and Mary Smith, his wife husband dies first house passes to wife there's no court proceeding there's no probate the wife can probably sell the house tax free and why do i say that well you know right now there's no estate tax between gift or estate tax in new york or anywhere else between husband and wife assuming they're both u.s citizens so husband dies let's say a million dollar house Wife can sell the house with the copy of the death certificate and the deed, and that's really about it. She's not going to have a problem. And and again, what do I mean by tax-free? Let's say the house is worth a million dollars. When the husband dies, the wife gets a stepped-up basis on his half of the house, which, again, if it's worth one million, one half is $500,000. So the husband's half of the house steps up to $500,000. Assuming it's their personal residence, the wife can get $250,000 tax-free because it's her residence. And on top of that, if she sells within two years of her husband's death, she gets another $250,000 tax-free through him. So that's what I'm saying, a million dollars. And we're not even factoring in how much they paid for the house and how much they put in improvements. So ordinarily, husband and wife, we can sell that house tax-free. But let's say the wife, in this case, She's not going to sell the house. She decides to live in the house for the rest of her life. Um, Again, she's not going to sell it. She's going to live there for the rest of her life. So what does the wife do with the deed? The deed says John Smith and Mary Smith is wife. The wife's inherited the house. Now the husband's dead. What does she do with that deed? Now, usually what people used to say or do, say, well, why, why don't I put my son or daughter's name on the deed? And yes, you can do that. And it might work, but there are a lot of bad things that can happen. Putting your son's name on the deed, let's say, is not the same as putting your son's name on a bank account. You put your son's name on a bank account, something goes wrong, you go to the bank, you take the money out of the bank. You put your son's name on the deed, something goes wrong. His name's on that deed, you just can't take it back. And so let me give you a couple of stories that I usually use on my seminars. And if you've been to one of the seminars recently, I'm sorry to repeat myself. But let's say again... Person puts their son's name on the deed, joint tenants with right of survivorship. Um, son dies before, let's say mom in this case, Mrs. Smith. Son's married. His wife may have a claim on that house. She's entitled to a third of everything that her husband owned at the very least. So she might put in a claim for that third and may have a claim on your house and may force a sale of your house. You know. And, and here's one of the things, too. You put your son's name on the deed. You may not realize this, but you're giving him the right at some point to force a sale of the house and throw you out on the street, whether you know it or not. And you say my son would never do that, but again, if his wife steps into your shoe into his shoes, what's going to happen? You know, and, and you know one of the, the unfortunate facets of of life is that when somebody dies young, let's say your son. People get mad at each other, there's hard feelings, they're all angry at the situation, and they start fighting. And your daughter-in-law may start fighting with you, try to force a sale of your house. Believe me, that happens. Is that the only thing that can happen? No. You put your son's name on your deed. Your son's not married, he's single. He's a very reliable guy. He's He's got a job where they take the taxes out of his paycheck each week. He's not going to get in trouble with the IRS or something like that. And But he's driving one day. It's a heavy rainstorm. He puts his, he put his foot on the brakes, the brakes skid. He hits the back of a school bus. Children are playing in the back of the bus. They shouldn't be playing, but they're not responsible. They're children. Your son's responsible He hit the back of the bus. Those children have a lawsuit against your son. Some of those children are seriously injured. Your son, because he hit the back of the bus, is responsible. His insurance doesn't cover everything those children get a judgment against him, those children have a judgment against you, or not against you necessarily, but they have a judgment against your house. You can't sell a mortgage your house as long as that judgment's in play. And judgments can be good in effect for 20 years. That's a long time. Your house is tied up for, for 20 years. You can't sell it or mortgage it, including getting a reverse mortgage, as long as that judgment's in play. So you know, things happen. Bad things happen. We talked about the IRS a minute ago. Let's say you put your daughter's name on the deed. Your daughter's married. She's married to a businessman who's taking expenses and deductions off his tax return he shouldn't be taking. Your daughter files a joint return with him. They're married. The IRS audits their return. The IRS puts a lien on their assets. The IRS has a lien on your house because you put your daughter's name on the deed. And that's no matter how you did it, whether you did it with a life estate, joint tenants, right ride a survivorship, just put her name on it. The IRS has a lien on your house. And don't think your daughter can just go in the middle of the night and give you back the deed and nobody's going to know about it. The IRS agent in charge of the file can look on a computer, see every real estate transaction involving your daughter's name for the last 60 years almost. There's no secrecy in whose name's on your deed. If you have a house in New York City, Anybody can get on the internet, type a name into the internet, and find out what properties, what real estate transactions, involve that person's name for the last sixty years. Somebody can go on right now and see the names on your deed. There's no privacy in who owns your deed, and even if your deed is more than fifty years old, they, somebody can search it down on public record. But since 1966, every deed, you can go on the n- internet in New York City. You can go on the internet check that deed, check to see whose name's on it, and if that deed was changed, it's public record. So, you know, that's another example. i give you a, a story that hit the uh, Daily News a few years ago. The story in the Daily News, and this is more than 10 years ago, I think, at this point, um, the headline in the Daily News was Hit the Bricks, Granny. Now, here's the story behind the headlines. woman was in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, and if you know the area... Real estate's worth a lot. You know, it's not necessarily a special house or anything. It's on the right block, in the right place, or whatever. So, 95-year-old woman owns a house that's worth $2 million back then. She says, well, I'm not going to live much longer. I'll put my daughter's name on the deed. You know, I'll make it very easy for her. She puts her daughter's name on the deed. Daughter, who's 70 years old, dies. She has a simple will, leaving her house to her son. Son now inherits the house from his mother. He's got a $2 million house in Carroll Gardens. At the time, which is not applicable right now, at the time, we had to pay a hundred, or he had to pay $100,000 estate, death tax on that. So what is he going to do? Well, sorry, Grandma. We have to sell the house. Uh is anybody going to buy the house if Grandma's living inside the house? No. So what does he have to do? He has to evict his grandmother. Hit the bricks, Granny. Bad things happen when you just put somebody else's name on your deed. You know, in all the stories I gave you, uh, I'm not taking these out of my imagination. I'm using my memory. These bad things happen. You know, if, if nothing else, let's say for the sake of argument, You put your son or daughter's name on your deed. You make a straight gift to them. Well, I think most of you know that if you sell your house while you're alive, the first $250,000 of the sales price of your personal resident is not taxed. It goes out tax-free upon the sale. But let's say your son or daughter, they don't live in the house. Well, they don't live in the house. They don't get that $250,000 exclusion. You may be paying income taxes you otherwise would not have to pay. Let's say you're a senior citizen. You have a senior citizen's exemption on your house. You put your son's name on the house. Obviously, he's not a senior citizen. Your real estate taxes go up because, again, he's not a senior citizen. Both of you own the house together. Real estate taxes went up because one of the owners is not a senior citizen, and he doesn't live there. So real estate taxes go up. You keep it straight. If you have a trust agreement, You take care of all the what-ifs. The trust agreement ordinarily is going to say, and there are exceptions to every rule, it can say whatever you want it to say. If people ask me, can I do this in the trust, can I do that in the trust, the answer is almost always yes. But basically, 90% of the trust agreements we do, I leave the house to my son and my daughter. If my son dies before me, his share of the house passes to his children, my grandchildren, not his wife. A trust was established in England, you know, over a thousand years ago to keep assets within the family line. We do the same thing today. Again, it works automatically. It's, it's the way like a lot of people think a will works. You know, your house is in a trust the day after you're gone, your children can sell the house with a death certificate. Tax-free. Right now, the estate taxes in New York. The first, as of January 1st, it's going to be $6,060,000 goes out tax-free, so Assuming your entire estate is less than six million dollars, your children sell the house after you're gone, they net, let's say, one million dollars for the sales price after they pay the real estate broker and some of the closing costs. Then at that point, they net a million dollars. You got two kids, they each put five hundred thousand dollars in their pocket. There's no tax. Are there other ways to get there? Yes. We can go through probate. But if we go through probate, your children are going to pay a lot to go through probate, and there are going to be delays that you can't even imagine in today's world. You do a trust agreement, your children can sell the house the day after you're gone with a death certificate. Now, again, if you ask me, can I do this in a trust, can I do that in a trust, the answer is yes. Can you say in your trust that I don't want my house to be sold until my dog dies because I don't want my dog to be you know, looking for a new home, we can do that, yes. Now, it's it's not as easy as I just said, but we can have the trust continue for the dog's lifetime or 21 years and can say that the house can't be sold until the dog dies or 21 years after your death. And, and is that really done? Yeah, I've seen people do it. So if you ask me, if you're in one of our seminars, if you come into our office, can I do this in a trust? Can I do that in a trust? The answer is almost always yes. Trust is a very flexible document. It's your house as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it passes the next generation. Again, usually tax free, under $6 million right now in New York. And nobody even, not even the lunatics in Washington, the lunatics that are in Washington, are trying to make it less than $6 million. So $6 million tax free capital gains are wiped out by death. Now, I know if you're reading an article on the internet that may say, well, the Democrats are going to take away the estate tax or the uh, capital gains tax exclusion, the stepped-up basis. Basically, Chairman Neal of the House Ways and Means Committee said he's not going to take away the stepped-up basis, so if you have even a couple of Democrats saying no to tax increases, it's not going to get passed, because there's not going to be a single Republican who votes for a tax increase. So, You know, we should be safe, and of course next year there are going to be you know, elections next year, and and hopefully things will be a little bit better down in Washington. But again, if you ask me, I've got a house, what is the best way to take care of my house? We put it into a trust agreement. We avoid going through court. After you pass away, your children can sell the house a few days after you're gone, and ordinarily they can sell the house tax-free. So if you want to come in and, and talk a consultation, what the trust can do for you, especially as far as real estate is concerned. Let's say you have real estate in different states. You have a trust agreement. You put your house in New York under a trust. You put your house in Pennsylvania and the Poconos under a trust. And you put your house in Florida under a trust. You can avoid probate in all three states and ordinarily get it out tax-free. Now, Pennsylvania has some strange rules or whatever, so we got to be a little careful when we go to Pennsylvania because there's some counties where you do have to pay a transfer tax depending on what the trust says, whether it goes to family members, doesn't go to family members, goes to charities, or stuff like that. But, again, if you want to come in and you want to talk about it, you're more than welcome to schedule an appointment at 238-718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. You can talk it over. Again, there's no one right answer, uh, you know, ahead of time. But if you come in and we talk it over, we'll try to come up with a plan based on your circumstances And then we go from there. Well, listen, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors.
0: I'm in a good place in my life.
4: And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with.
6: And a good relationship.
4: But even though I'm kind of comfortable,
6: I sometimes wonder,
1: is there something more?
4: Could God in church be what you're looking for?
1: Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
3: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of times we get calls in in, in some cases like a loved one of mine has been maybe neglected in a nursing home, hopefully not abused, but neglected, and sometimes they develop bed sores. And, and there are problems with nursing homes and, you know, maybe they're understaffed or whatever, but they're they still owe a duty of care to the elderly person. And and we have some of these problems. We refer to our next guest, Deborah Trahowski. Welcome to the show, Deborah.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be with you today.
3: OK, can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and what you do?
0: Sure. Um, I focus my practice on the area of elder neglect and abuse cases and basically what that means is that we represent families or residents or patients if someone has been neglected or abused in either a nursing home setting home care, hospital, or assisted living setting. And in addition to doing this type of work in my practice, um, I now, and for many years, have been an advocate in this area also. And I serve on the board of the Long-Term Care Community Coalition that uh, advocates for the rights of people in long-term care settings also.
3: Well, you know, and and first, on my mind anyway, how has COVID changed things? I mean. What is your experience as far as COVID affecting the care in nursing homes?
0: Well, uh, I I have seen, unfortunately, that uh, care has worsened during this period, um, and I also see that um, that COVID has brought to light uh, some underlying serious problems that have been going on for many years that uh, especially as advocates we've been trying to bring to light into people's attention
3: and and well you know like I, I know one of the things of course is getting a little bit better now of course visitation rights and i think one of the best ways mm-hmm. to stop neglect is to have somebody visit
0: yes absolutely uh what I think that the pandemic and the lockdown and the inability to visit really brought to light also was the role that families, loved ones, friends play in the care of many people in nursing homes. Uh, they really have, uh, they, they offer a lot of services to their loved ones. They help with feeding them and, uh, and just, uh, and being aware of what, in their condition or helping them uh, making sure they're drinking fluids um, and socializing with them. And, and so it brought to light the role that a lot of caregivers uh, or family members have given to residents. And so as a result of that, we now have in New York State the Essential Caregivers Act, which um, was actually spearheaded by loved ones of residents who had that role of visiting and providing these services. And so now, thankfully, if the pandemic, uh, as we're still in the throes of this, unfortunately, but, but in the future, and currently, we now have this act, which actually allows each nursing home resident to designate to caregivers or visitors who would be allowed inside even in the midst of a pandemic with appropriate protections and there are guidelines in terms of just some some parameters on that but we now have this act as a result of um, the pandemic basically.
3: And again can you explain what that act does to what does that give the elderly patient?
0: So it allows the patient to select two people that they want to be their um, essential caregiver or visitor. And so as we all, a lot of people experienced uh, in this past uh, year and a half, when visitation was uh, basically prohibited in nursing homes, people were restricted to window visits, uh, virtual visits, and what this act now allows is that If a facility is in this lockdown uh, situation and visitation is prohibited, that these two individuals that the resident designates would still be allowed to come in. And again, they need to have proper um, protections and safeguards in terms of masks and things like that. Um, But they would still be allowed in even if. Um, there is a ban on visitation. And again, there are certain restrictions if that person, the visitor is, uh, was exposed to someone with, with COVID that they wouldn't be allowed in. But And the DOH has issued guidance on this, but essentially this act is meant to prevent a similar situation that it, had that it happened in the height of the pandemic that no one could come in and that resident had no one coming in as a visitor.
3: I'm going to change the subject just slightly, but let's say you're visiting someone in a nursing home, whether it's your friend, your relative, uh, distant relative or whatever, what should you be looking for to make sure that your your loved one is being cared for properly and not being neglected?
0: That's a great question. Uh, well, looking at a uh, person's general appearance, do they appear to be well taken care of, uh, you know, uh, are their clothes clean? Is, is their hair? Are they being properly groomed? And also, what's important to do is to look at the parts of the body that you wouldn't normally see. We, um, as you mentioned, uh, bed sores earlier on uh, when we were speaking. And bed sores is something uh, that is a problem, can be a significant problem in certain nursing homes. And it's something that we handle a lot in our practice. And bed sores happen where where we don't see, where we don't see those parts of the body. They happen on bony prominences where people sit, the lower back, the hips, the buttock, the heels. And so when visiting someone, Facilities will sometimes say to families, there's a rule that you have to leave the room when someone is being changed. And there is no rule that says that. What I think the premise of of saying there's a rule is the HIPAA protections, that someone has a right to privacy. But if someone is the healthcare agent, if someone is the surrogate decision maker under the Family Healthcare Decisions Act, or if the resident simply says, yes, my son, daughter, niece, nephew can stay in the room when I'm being changed, then the person can stay in the room. And what I recommend looking at are those areas I just mentioned, the areas that we don't see, uh, just to make sure that the skin looks okay, there isn't any redness, any type of wound that is uh, going on in in those areas of the skin.
3: And I mean, it may be distasteful, but bed sores, they're horrific-looking. And, and and they cause a tremendous amount of pain, and what should they do? Let's say if they if they do find a bed sore or there evidence of some neglect.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Then I would recommend that the person speak to the nurse about it and find out what is being done to first of all that they're aware of it. And second, that what steps are being taken to care for that wound. And and that, that brings me to um, another suggestion that I would make to, to families, and that is to ask to participate in the care plan meeting, which is a, a meeting that addresses what type of care and interventions are being made for their family member. And if someone, again, is a healthcare agent or the... Um, surrogate decision maker under the Family Health Care Decisions Act, or again, the resident says it's okay, then that person can participate in, in that care plan meeting. And and if, um, if someone isn't satisfied with the answer they're getting, and it, it is sometimes difficult to get answers, uh, then I would just keep escalating the questions. If the nurse isn't responding, I would ask to speak to the nursing supervisor or the director of nursing or the doctor or the administrator. Just keep go with your gut feeling that that's something that um, I feel has really is an important message for people. Don't feel, if you're not getting answers, don't give up.
3: Well, let me ask you something. Let's say you're one of these people. How do you go about getting your loved one's medical records, whether they're alive or dead?
0: Well, the facility, uh, the typical process is to provide an authorization to The facility and it can be referred to as a HIPAA authorization. And again, it would be limited to someone who had access to legal access to someone's records, such as The healthcare agent. And then if there's no healthcare proxy in New York, we have the Family Healthcare Decisions Act, which would allow someone based on the order of priority set forth in the act. To, uh, to make healthcare decisions or obtain medical records for the individual. And the facility does have a right to charge 75 cents a page for those records. Uh, people can ask to get the records electronically on a disc and then the facility should only be charging the actual um, cost to create that disc which often is $6.50. And that would be the way to go about uh, getting the records.
3: Do you have any parting words for the audience what, you, you know about, about their loved ones or what we can do? And what happens, let's say, if you do have bed sores, what kind of legal action do you take?
0: If, uh, if someone does develop bed sores, then uh, I would certainly recommend that the family speak with an attorney regarding what their legal options are. We have a wonderful statute in New York State under the public health law that we utilize when we are suing nursing homes, when they've provided inadequate care and bed sores develop. And, and nursing home residents, they don't lose their rights when they go into a nursing home. And even though people may have heard about immunity from, from liability for different healthcare providers, it's never changed the fact that people have rights and their powerful rights under federal rights, New York State, uh, rules and regulations that that people do have these do have these rights and and uh, and there are a couple of um, pieces of uh, legislation and rules that will be going into effect in the new year regarding minimum staffing and also legislation that uh, requires operators to spend certain percentages of their revenue on cares just to help ensure that uh, that care improves in New York State.
3: Do you think as the result of COVID, the, the care has reduced dramatically because people are not visiting as much and there are restrictions on the visits?
0: Well, I, I think that, uh, yes, it, it's a combination of factors. Um, the fact that family members haven't been able to come in and and observe and, and be aware of what's going on and help with care is, is a factor. And also staffing has been a problem that uh, – has been a problem for, for decades. And uh, prior to this act I was just mentioning, the only guidance on staffing was that under the regulations that nursing homes had to have sufficient staffing. And that's really very vague. And uh, we as advocates have been uh, advocating for decades to have minimum staffing legislation so that that there would be at least a minimum amount of staff to make sure that residents are getting proper care. and. The uh, legislation uh, that's going into effect next year isn't quite at the point which we, as advocates, had hoped for, and which a landmark federal study called for. But you know, at least it's it's a step um, in the right direction.
3: Okay. Well, we'll we're kind of running out of time, Deborah. Is there anything else you want to tell the audience about yourself, or you know, about the, your loved ones in nursing homes and w- what to do to prevent neglect?
0: Well, I do think that visitation is very important. And uh, I think it, it's important to visit when, as much as one can at different times of the day so that um, facilities don't know when someone is coming and aren't perhaps on their best behavior or the, their loved one is, is in the best condition. Um, again, go with someone's gut instinct if they feel that something is not right To to trust that feeling and to not give up and to pursue it. Uh, and that we're happy to speak with families if they feel that something uh, is amiss and not right with their loved one. We're glad to speak to them to uh, to discuss what's going on and to see if it is something that uh, would be appropriate for legal action or to try to refer them to an appropriate uh, agency or organization that might be able to assist them if it's not something that rises to the level of legal action at that time. Okay. And also yeah. what's important okay? Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. I'm just going to add one more thing. Uh, and what's really uh, helpful is that in these types of cases, when we do bring cases against nursing homes, it is all on a contingency fee basis. So families don't have to worry about advancing funds for investigation of a case or legal fees. Uh, we're only compensated at the end of the case if there is actually a recovery on behalf of their loved one or family member.
3: Okay. And again, I have to say personally, Deborah, you've helped uh, many of our clients receive compensation. Of course, you, you, you never, I mean, money doesn't make everything better, but you know, at least I think it also sends a message to nursing homes. They should take care of their patients better. You know, if there's a threat of a lawsuit.
0: You're absolutely right. It It, do, it does send that strong message that we often see that Facilities are making decisions, uh, cost-benefit analysis, and when something bad happens and someone is injured or, God forbid, dies because of neglect, when this lawsuit is brought, it's telling them that you know, they can't continue to make decisions, that uh, financial decisions that ultimately harm residents. So it, it does send a powerful message when, uh, when families uh, take that legal action and, and hold these facilities accountable in that way.
3: Okay, Deborah Truhasky, thank you for what you're doing. You're fighting the good fight. And if anybody out there, if you, you want to get in touch with Deborah about one of the cases, give us a call at 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500. Deborah, again, thank you for what you're doing.
0: Mr. Connor, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Take
2: care.
6: I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers.
1: Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com.
6: Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every
3: single one. Do you know what we can do? With Saint Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope, we can give them medicines, we can give them medical equipment,
4: we can give them everything they're looking for, because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they're
3: recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So Saint Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping the Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to Saint Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Thank you, Deborah Trahowski. And and I just want to tell the audience out there, if you have a relative that suffered bed sores or some kind of other mistreatment, by a nursing home, hospital, your elderly person just wasn't, your elderly relative just wasn't treated properly, I, I strongly recommend you may want to talk to, to Deborah, and she's gotten some very good results for some of our clients. I just met one this this morning that was, you know, listen, you don't want money judgments because your father got a bed sore or something like that, but if they did get a bed sore, you should teach a lesson to the hospital the nursing home that mistreated your parent. Bring a lawsuit. You get money. Money hurts. You make your point. Listen, the world doesn't revolve around money. Money's not the most important thing in the world, but at the same time, it doesn't hurt you or the heirs, and you're making a point to the nursing home or the hospital who mistreated your parent. That's the only way they're going to take notice. They're not going to take notice because you write a letter complaining about it. They take notice when their pocketbooks are hurt, when their insurance premiums go up, So, and, and don't feel guilty about it. The, the nursing homes the hospitals they have insurance. in the meanwhile if you, if you if you want to see Deborah, you can give us a call at our office and we'll schedule an appointment with you and Deborah. It's very easy she's very easy to talk to and the results have been very good for many of our clients. now Michael we you know we didn't take any email questions in today's uh, segment so if somebody has a question they want to email us what do they do and where do they send it to?
6: If you have an email question, Um, Just draft us an email and send it to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors, of course, spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. We'll try to get back to you. you If if it's something that's not confidential, we may read your question on air. If it is confidential, of course, we'll keep it between us, and we'll try to get back to you as soon as possible.
3: Okay, and if somebody wants to see our seminars on,
6: on YouTube, where do they get it? If you haven't had a chance to go to one of our in-person seminars, or if you're, you know, still a little bit nervous about being in a room with a bunch of people, one of the best ways you can catch up on everything that we discuss there, if you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, um, if you think you need to know more about estate planning and elder law, or if you just, you know, want to hear from Mr. Connors on his expertise, go to YouTube.com, I mean, I think everyone's familiar with that at this point, but still, Y-O-U-T-U-B-E.com, and go search Connors and Sullivan video seminar. It's that easy. Connors and Sullivan video seminar. You should see Dad right there as the first result. And yeah, it's a long video, but I'll tell you right now, the information is worth sitting through.
3: And again, if you want to, you can just you you don't want to listen through the seminar, which I can't blame you because it's long. And in a lot of cases, you know, we may do an hour of seminar, and ten minutes applies to you, and fifty minutes doesn't. So if you want to come in and schedule an appointment, we can talk about that 10 minutes that does apply to you and and try to focus on your problems and try to give you the right solution. And if you want to do that, you're more than welcome to give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We can schedule appointments with you in our main office in Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Staten Island on Highland Boulevard, Middle Village, Queens, Bayside, Queens, and Midtown Manhattan. Thank you for joining us. Listen, we're close to Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week at the same times and dates. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: We are
1: gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We, are gathered, we are gathered. here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song
2: away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.